0: 2 Samuel chapter 2. Kings and fools. That's who we are going to be looking at this evening. Uh, Unfortunately, maybe more often than not, kings and fools are the same thing. In this chapter, we have one king that's a fool. The other is not. But we have a bunch of other characters who behave as fools and hopefully we'll learn something. If not, we'll be Righteously entertained by their mistakes. Proverbs 14. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the spirit of wisdom. You find out, you know, this guy is just a fool. There's no reason why he can't make right decisions. Uh, and you need to try to separate yourself. Unfortunately, sometimes you know that it's your supervisor or someone else maybe it's someone it's, it's you you are supervising it's a partner who knows so we are going to discuss David the anointed king of Judah Ishbosheth the one who is appointed king in Israel and then there is the duel between the men the young men of Judah and Israel and then the ensuing battle. So we look now at verse 1. It happened after this that David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. Well, David, of course, received news of Saul's death. We discussed that in chapter 1 of Second Samuel. He's about 25 years old at this point, as near as I can calculate it, because we've got to get him on the throne at 30, age 30. And so we walk it back from there. And he is going to uh, be king in Hebron for seven and a half years before he gets to the throne. Uh, he in, it says, David inquires of the Lord. uh, Abiathar, not Abiathar, Abiathar, the priest, the survivor from the massacre of the priest by demonically influenced Saul, he is with David still, and he has the ephod with him, and because of that, he is going to be able to inquire from the Lord. Uh, It took faith to get an answer from God using the Urim and the Thummim. It must have been difficult, or should I put it this way? It was not easy or casual. Otherwise, it would have just stayed, in. A, it would have been like you know, consulting a, a crystal ball or something like that, or the oracles. Uh, so there must have been some more to it than what we are told. Yet what we know is that righteous men consulted for the will of God and received an answer. And David here actually gets into dialogue, a brief, but it is, he asks a question of God. David initiates this, God does not. What would have happened if David had not initiated the question to God? What would happen in our lives if we do not initiate the prayer? It's something that we should be mindful of. Uh, Common sense is not faith, however... Faith is not senseless. Faith has sense with it. Uh, Faith is uncommon sense. It's a blend of the natural abilities and the spiritual uh, participation of the Holy Spirit for the believer. And what makes David such a man of God is not only that he seeks God, but he's going to subject himself to whatever God says. When we get to Jeremiah, I think, I don't know, 47, 48, maybe 44. Uh, he encounters a group that tell him, Jeremiah, whatever you say to us, we're going to do it. Just consult God and just tell us. Whatever you say, we'll submit. And Jeremiah says, give me ten days. He comes back. He says, well, this is what thus says the Lord. And they said, we're not going to listen to that. And they get quite nasty with him about it. Uh, of course, King Saul, who we won't have to talk about too much soon, but we still have to refer to him in these early stages of David's appointment to king over Judah, Uh, he would seek God in the early years of his reign, but he had no intention of submitting. And and this is why he lost, of course, uh, the rule and the Christian, of course, we zero in on our Lord in Gethsemane when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We never forget that. We know every time we make a prayer that is part of, of our relationship, If the Son of God subjected himself uh, to those terms, then we better find ourselves doing the same thing. Uh, It's not enough to be anointed. Saul was anointed. Judas Iscariot was anointed to be an apostle. You still have to commune with God. You must be in tune with him, in, in rhythm, desiring him. Anointing never makes us free from the necessity of consulting God. And this is one of the lessons from this phase. David was anointed by Samuel. This will be his second anointing coming up, part of a three-phase anointing. And yet he is still consulting the will of God and not saying, Hi, I'm anointed, I'll do what I please. That, that again would have been Saul. An anointing is a calling to remain closer to God. Because you've been assigned a specific work and you are uh, most deaf to be in rhythm with God. You, you know that you depend on him. A dangerous time if a person feels that, you know, they don't need to pray about this. They're so good at it. Imagine imagine the pastor stepping into the pulpit. No, that's all right. Let, never mind the prayers. Let me get to preaching. Well, you got nothing to preach without prayer. So anyway, he's saying, shall I go up? To any of the cities of Judah, so so what attracts me? about doubt, David is essentially saying, not a single step will I take without God telling me what step to take, in what direction to take it. Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? Well, he knew he could not go to the, any of the other cities; they wouldn't welcome him there, but his own people would. Jesus said, "I can do of myself. Uh, I can do of myself nothing." As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And of course, we all are familiar with Proverbs 3. Who hasn't owned a coffee mug with Proverbs 3 not on it? Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths." Well, just because we're very familiar with the verse doesn't take any of its power away, any of its authority in our lives. Sometimes, God's many times, God says, "Okay, I'm directing your path. Uh, you need to go stay in the wilderness for a while." You, you, that was David's life. He had been seeking God all of his life, and and what did it get him? Chased by Saul for. I don't know, I, I've been walking that number back. To now, I'm about five years he was running from Saul, give or take. And then there's the months. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, he was willing to be inconvenienced in the will of God. I mean, Daniel was willing to be thrown to the lions in the will of God. If they hate you enough, they will make laws to kill you. And that's what they did with Daniel. And he said, Fine. Uh, the cities here, saying, shall I go to the cities of Judah, uh, Hebron, incidentally, where the Lord is going to, to send him, um, its original name actually has that in it. Genesis 23, the name of Hebron was uh, Kirjath Arba, which means city of four. So it appears that Hebron, which is a very high elevation, incidentally, was made up of four towns or cities that made up Hebron. And David is saying, is it one of those cities? Shall I go to Judah? Yes. Where shall I go? To Hebron. That's the city where he's going to end up. And so the Lord tells him to go up. There's a dialogue. And I find in this another interesting point for Christians is you know we get discouraged. We, we battle discouragement. If you're doing some of you, some of you just in life, but then there then there's in the work of the Lord. You ask Him what His will is. He tells you what His will is. You go forward and you meet with discouragement. Well, what happens when you overcome that discouragement? Still, stuff has to take place. It's it's not enough. To, okay, I feel better now. <laughs> I'm not so bummed out. Well, then what? Well, you you have to receive a refreshed direction or directive from God. Do I continue on this course? Do I do anything different? That there still has to be this dialogue? And then to execute it with faith and vigor. Not just faith, but some energy, some some thrust behind uh, the confidence of knowing that God is directing you in that area. Otherwise, what do you end up with? Sort of a... Melancholy ministry, I mean, that's not going to help anyone. Uh, If you don't, I think, do it this way. Discouragements, they stack up. And every time we're discouraged, we lose something. Well, to get that something back, I I think we, we have to be refreshed and we must have some vigor. It's a defiant spirit. Um, especially, again, when people hurt your feelings. That's a big hit in Christianity. People are going to hurt your feelings, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. You can hurt your own feelings. <laughs> uh, what are you going to do with that? Because it will knock you out. It could knock you completely out of the fight. You're hurt. And a lot of sourpuss Christians won't go back to a church because their feelings were hurt. If the angels could talk to them, they'd say, get back in there. How dare you run away over that? But... These are the facts. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, to finish it, to see it all the way through, not to just get pieces put together. And of course, his finishing involved his assignment. There was more to the work than what he did. That's why he sent the apostles out and said, greater works you're going to do collectively. So Hebron, to Hebron, David said, where shall I go? And he said to Hebron, a very defensible position because of its elevations. It would be a deterrent for uh, attackers in the early ages of his reign. Uh, he probably not sure what's going to happen there. Verse 2, So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Um. Again, that's not the Mount Carmel to the north where Elijah put down the false prophets. This is a, uh, Carmel to the south in Judah's territory. And, or towards it at least. Uh, this, having two wives. The Lord said, the two, not the multiple, shall be one flesh. He said the two. And that's critical to the commandment. God met this Polygamy in the Old Testament with tolerance. He also meets it in the New Testament with some tolerance, because well, otherwise you'll see alternatives to divide families. When when people who were polygamists got saved and came out of the Gentile world into the church, God did not massacre the relationships. He just gave them a clean slate under those terms, and uh, it it phased out of Christianity. Henoim, uh, the first wife of David. Well, we don't know if she was a problem or not. We know that she gave birth to Amnon, his first son, his firstborn. And he was one of the mighty, despicable creeps of the Bible. And we'll get to him in latter chapters. And Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Three times she, her name is brought up and is, it is presented to us this way. Actually four, but three identical. The, the, and I haven't really figured out why is the historian kind of harping on this. Why can't he just say an Abigail? But he always says, when she's brought up in in Samuel, uh, Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. I I think there's something there. I just can't put my finger on it. I have some guesses, but those aren't trustworthy. Uh, Verse 2, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron, well, he had six hundred, about probably more by the time he leaves Ziklag, where he was based, and he moves to Hebron, and now he's going to have the nation. He, of, of, not the nation, but all of Judah, a significant, the, the largest tribe. He's, his force is going to go from from about a you know a um, a small uh, battalion to armies and. Uh, we've got just keep mindful of that because there 's going to be some fighting in this chapter if I ever get there, uh, but now he can settle down. Saul was the reason why these men could not go home once they sided with David, they were enemies of Saul forever, and they joined themselves to David, could not return home now. this is they can see their their you know, ex- families again and go back to their lands. Second Timothy uh, Paul says this. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Well, we're seeing this in David. These men endured with David. And now they're going to reign with him, not as kings, but they're going to be part of his kingdom. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It would be redundant if, uh, if the Calvinists can take that out of their Bibles. They don't need that section. Anyway, I know that's a that's not a cheap shot. It's my shot. But anyhow, uh, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, and they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So he knows Saul has been killed, that Amalekite informed him, but he doesn't know any more details than that. He gets to Judah, and of course, they're sitting around getting, plugging in, and He's told, by the way, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they retrieved the body of Saul. He may have asked, whatever happened to Saul's body? Was it properly handled? And so the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now he is being anointed a second time. It is a confirmation of the first anointing years ago by Samuel. And. Men are not to really, we, we, we technically do not anoint. We recognize the anointing. Samuel did not technically, in this sense, anoint David. He, he obeyed God. God told him to anoint. It was God's anointing. Samuel just carried it out. And so when someone, uh, you know, there are people who, they can say, hey, anoint me. You say, no way. <laughs> I mean, you know, Simon Magnus, give me this power that he said to Peter, and Peter said, you poison with bitterness and bound in iniquity. He just launched on him. Uh, yet uh, there are others that uh, are, are certainly to be recognized as having a calling on them to a greater or a closer work with God. And this is the case with David, the men of Judah, saying we recognize what Samuel did. Samuel wasn't from Judah. He, uh, he was uh, a Levite, but he anointed David, And so now begins another phase towards the fulfillment. I I would like the whole thing right away. I mean, how would you like your paycheck? In sections? (laughs) You know, or the whole thing? Well, if God is the one that is God, and he is, uh, then you take it as he decides. This is still the making of a man of God, and that ought to cause all of us to pay closer attention because there is the making of us as a child of God. It doesn't stop. Uh, David is being fitted for a greater work. And by the time he becomes king of the whole nation, he will end up becoming Israel's greatest king. And now he's just a tribal king, albeit the largest of the tribes. He will eventually have all of the nation under him. So this was only a partial victory, no longer hounded by Saul living outside of the promised land, but now king over uh, at least his people. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, Jabesh-Gilead was on the east side of Jordan where the two and a half tribes were content to settle when uh, Joshua brought them into the land. Well, actually they settled there when Moses was still leading them. And... uh, They risked their lives to retrieve the body of Saul and Jonathan. David is uh, moved by that. Verse 2, verse 5. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of Yahweh, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. Now... They're not going to side with David. They're, they're loyal to Saul and his di- his descendants. They're, they're not going to move, but they're not going to... They don't appear to react either against David. We won't read of them much. But going back to the book of Judges, remember the Benjamites committed that horrific crime, and all the tribes gathered and fought them. And then after defeating them, they said, okay, was anybody called to the battle that didn't show up? And Well, Jabesh Gilead did not show up, and they had... 600 survivors from Benjamin with no wives now because they wiped everybody out and they were determined to give them 600 wives, but they took an oath none of our daughters will be given to them. So they had to start coming up with a plan. And part of the plan was, well, did anybody not go with us to make the oath? Well, Jabesh Gilead did not. Jabesh Gilead were from Manasseh, incidentally. So they, of course, wipe out the men that Jabesh Gilead and the children and the Women, except the virgins who had a different garb, dress, you could identify them. And they took them and gave them to the survivors of Benjamin. They were still 200 short. And that's when they, you know, if you see the, when the women come out to dance, you just clobber one and she's your wife. You drag her home. Cavemanish like, but that's a little embellished. But technically, without the clobbering in the head, that's what happened. It's just kind of a blend of the caveman, because it was the goofiest thing. It's so goofy. Uh, but some men would kind of like to have that system today. You go to the mall, you say, I like her, and you just take her home. It could be a lot of problems that way. Anyhow, the reason why I bring all this up also is because here's Jabesh Gilead. How did they get more men back? They were wiped out. Well, they were part of Manasseh. So Manasseh is a large tribe. They just said, hey, just the city's not burned down, or if, even if it is a good piece of land, go there. So they resettled it. It's the only answer that I, I, I think works. That's my answer, and I like it. So, it's not an important one unless you... I get stumped. I have to try to answer these. It has to fit. That fits. Well, not that I lost any sleep over that one, but I did spend some time in my days thinking about it. Verse 6 And now many, pardon me, and now may Yahweh show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. He's king now in Judah, and he's behaving like a statesman. Uh, He probably knows they're not going to come and say, David, you're king over us too. That would be a a tall order. Just where they're located is too far from Judah. But he says here kindness and truth. He puts them together. If we had a nickel for every time we came across a Christian who thought they had truth but had no kindness and were very content with that, we'd probably be rich. It's sad that the blend is neglected. We have no right to only be kind to people that might be able to do something for us. Um, People in leadership learn in time that there are those that behave very nicely and around them and then when they are off with the others they're not so nice. It's a very sad thing when someone leaves the church and others come up and say, boy, the whole time they were there let me tell you what they were doing. It wasn't anything you know robbing or anything blatant, but they're just mean or snarky or something. Anyhow we have to we can't sweep these things under the rug because then you just trip over them later. It's best to at least know where the lumps are and avoid them and say, Lord, may it not be me. May this word that comes from your anointed king, kindness and truth, have some value in how I behave all the days of my life. Verse 7, now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And of course, they're reading this and they say, Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all good for you. Uh, but he's not making any attempt to force them or to convince them. Uh, they will, in fact, Jabesh Gilead will become the headquarters of Ishbosheth, Saul's surviving son, once he becomes king, uh, five years after the events that we're looking at here. Verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, it's like they didn't complete his name. Ner what? Finish? (laughs) It can't be his name. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Uh, Abner, we've met him before, he was Saul's military commander, and a cousin of Saul, incidentally. And he initially is rejecting David's claim to the throne, uh, but he will, he will come around. Uh, we have a lot to talk about him for a while. But uh, just because Saul was out of the way does not mean that things just fell into place for David or for Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Uh, he survived. Evidently, he wasn't at the battle. At least, not that battle of uh, the Battle of Gilboa. Maybe one of the offside battles. He's old enough. Maybe Saul was wise and said, Well, you stay back just. Well, he knew, Saul knew he was going to die. And maybe he left him behind to say, You know, so my seed will survive and to take the throne. Whatever the case may be. He is alive, and he is in line for the throne. And Abner takes five years to crown him king over the northern tribes. Why is that? I think Abner is just like, the boy is dumb. And I'm not going to give it to him yet. He's got to be worked on. I think some of that may have been taking place. Some of the commentators like to say, well, they were busy fighting the Philistines. Well, what would that have to do with making him king? All the more reason to make him king. You need a king. So... Uh, anyway, I, I think Abner was enjoying being in charge, and I think he got a little tired of it after a while, and uh, that's when he's going to give it up to Ishbosheth. Uh, Mahanaim, this is an interesting place in scriptures, the capital in Gilead, and it is Jacob who na- gave it this name. Jacob, of course, departs from Laban. Uh, the scoundrel, one of the mighty scoundrels of the Bible, not as bad as Amnon, but still a scoundrel. And they, Laban catches up to him with intent to harm him physically, to kill him and take his children and his grandchildren back to him in Syria. Well, God comes to Laban in a dream and says, Don't you dare. And so he catches up and he's got to hold, <laughs> restrain himself. Well, when Jacob leaves there, this is before he wrestles. He doesn't yet wrestle with the angel of the Lord. But as he's traveling, he encounters angels. The angels met him. I don't, I don't mean they came, hi, Jacob. I'm angel so-and-so. Nice to meet you. Not that kind. But he was very much, uh, he, he touched another dimension spiritually. He knew the angels were there. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 32, in verse 1, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. It's a double camp. That means he's referring to the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It's a double dimension there. Uh, and he called the name of the place Mahanaim. That the presence of the angel, We don't have any dialogue. We, we have nothing more than that. He saw the angels... Their presence, just that he saw them, contained a message all by itself. The message is that God is with you. He knew that. Esau would have just said, hey, have you seen any deer in this area? (laughs) I mean, that would have been Esau. It would have just missed the whole spiritual uh, idea behind everything. And there is no greater feeling for a believer than to know God is with you. When there's trouble around. I mean, we know God is with us. We were just singing, Forever God is faithful. You know, God is with us. But to know he's with us when we are in trouble of some sort. No greater feeling. Facing shipwreck because of others. You know, the pilot and the captain. Ah, we don't listen to Saul. We're going to go forward and sail. And and the south wind blew. And And then all of a sudden, it was a storm. Acts chapter 23. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, that's Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness in Rome. You will get to Rome. So that great assurance Paul had that God is with him. He still had to suffer shipwreck, though. That was pretty scary. Uh, Facing death later, he wrote to Timothy, but the Lord stood with me. When everyone else forsook, didn't want to have anything to do with Paul, you know, don't get close to that guy. The Romans will already pick you up. You know, they'll check your... <laughs> they, they come after you. Uh, they, they abandoned him. But he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Just like Daniel. Uh... Daniel, has your God delivered you? Here I am. And Daniel was a little chatty after that. If you read that section, well, he's really talking a lot for somebody that just still standing around these lions. They might strike up an appetite. I mean, anyhow. Uh, this section in Timothy, where he says, the Lord stood with me, he connects all of his hardship to preaching the gospel. He doesn't say, the Lord stood with me, I really wanted that job. God does that. The Lord stood with me and I, I really was going through some sickness or legal mal, whatever it is. God does that. I'm not taking away from that. But I do want to inflate in our view for us that the sufferings of Paul were never in his own interest. I don't mean that to say that ours are therefore selfish. I'm just saying he suffered for the kingdom. Now, remember that the next time you feel in a mood, and you don't want to serve. You're tired? There's no excuse? Uh, get, get to work. Uh, that's the idea behind it. There are times that I want to go play. <laughs> I want to go do something and I can't because I've got 20 verses to go through still and it's going to, it's going to burn up all the daylight into the evening. And I think it's 100% worth it. Now, I don't know if the others do. <laughs> say, you know, no, end,' don't need any help there. I'm gonna, whether you do or not, I've still got my job to do. I uh, just have to try to do it better. Anyway, verse 9. And he made him king over Gilead. That's his Ishbosheth. Abner made him king. Over Asherites. Over Jezreel. Over Ephraim. Over Benjamin. Over all Israel. Why didn't you just say all over all Israel? And we wouldn't have to read all this. So uh, Gilead again—it's a central territory on the east of Jordan. To the tribes that didn't want to come into the Promised Land, they wanted to settle outside, and God permitted it. The Asherites—it's a variant of the tribe of Asher, but it's including. Naphtali is up that way, and uh, Zebulun is is up there. It, well, Jezreel—it's uh, all connected. Asher, Zebulun, Manasseh, Ishkar—they're uh, there, and then he mentions. Ephraim and Benjamin, and then he says the rest. So Gad and, for instance, and Dan might have said, "Hey, how come we didn't get any mention, a shout out?" So his power uh, is sure uh, to the north and east of the Jordan, but he's not qualified. It won't work well for him. Verse ten, Ish he will survive this chapter, but not the next one. Ishbosheth Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, only the house of Judah followed David. So if he was 40, he was 35 when Saul died, because it was five years delay before he was anointed, that would tell us that Jonathan was substantially older than David. Uh, Jonathan may have been 35, and David, you know, in his 20s, late, very late teens when they bonded together. David was probably about 16 when he slew Goliath. He could have been younger but likely around 16. Uh, Anyway, interesting little things that come off the pages to kind of put together, and they're really hard to button down uh, many times. Verse 10, Ishbosheth Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began. I I read that, didn't I? And uh, where's the Samuel of the north? At least David has Abiathar. But there's nothing righteous mentioned about the north. Well, this will be a characteristic that follows it until it's collapse, When the Assyrians come and uh, just take them all away. Uh, He's going to be a puppet king. Abner's going to call the shots. He's going to insult Abner at one point. You make a charge against Abner, and Abner's going to, that's it, I'm out of here. But Joab will, you know, drama music, Joab. Uh, Anyway, verse 11 and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Remember, two years for Ishbosheth. It's in the latter part of that seven and a half year period for David. Uh, David's probably be about twenty-eight when he comes to power, when Ishbosheth comes into power. Not counting the months, it's probably closer to twenty-nine. But anyway, verse twelve. Now, Abner the son of Ner. And the servants of ish the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And they're going out for battle, not negotiations. It's not just a platoon of men. Uh, because we know over 300 get killed just from this this side, just from Abner's men. So it's a sizable force. <clears throat> Verse 13 and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and, and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Nothing about that, that 13th verse should be dismissed. It's critical to the story. Uh, why are is one side on one side of the pool and the other on the if they get in striking distance, somebody's going to try to kill somebody. Uh, Joab is here. And what we know of him, if he gets the shot, he's taking it. There's nothing fair about him. He never misses a chance to stab someone to death. And he will He will stab Abner to death, Amasa to death, and Absalom. Something about the letter A at the first part of your name just didn't bother this guy. Uh, Uh, And he kills them up close. He's looking right in their eyes when he kills them. He is a brute. This is the first mention of him. He's mentioned in in 1 Samuel, but it's not part of the narrative. It's, oh, by the way, Joab was. Now he's in the story. And he's going to stay in the story until Solomon has him killed. David, from his deathbed, is going to say, you need to kill that guy. Uh, David could not. It would not have been good for the kingdom. But Solomon could. It was good for the kingdom. But he was, uh, he was a great man. But he was a bad man. The two are not the same. You can be great and good. You can be great and bad. He was great on the battlefield in that sense. That's the extent of his greatness. Uh, at one point, he and his brother get surrounded. and Joab just, just ups his game. Okay, you do this, Abishai, and I'll do this. and We'll beat these boys back. And that's what they did. Uh, he was loyal to David. Uh, Until until after, when Solomon was coming up, and then that was his fate. Anyway, he's David's nephew. He will become David's military commander. He's already a commander. And verse 14, uh, just pause. Just remember that part. There on the opposite side of the pool. Abner knows he better not get close to Joab. If anybody is the statesman, it's Abner, not Joab. And uh, when Abner does get close to Joab, he dies in chapter 3. Verse 14. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. At this point, the smart button in the brains of these two middle-aged men was turned to off. They have both become blazing idiots. And you, we'll see why if you don't know the story. And it is difficult to, to know uh, exactly why did they have this duel. Uh, was it a sporting event to kind of just show off or were they trying to say, okay, your cha- the champion wins and whatever kingdom loses becomes, joins the other one. It's not explicitly said. Uh, because... It ends in such a disaster of fools. That's why I I bring it up. Whatever it was, by their standard and by our standard today, it was a failure. And so we've talked about the kings, and now we have the fools. Uh, I don't think Abner was a fool all the time, but he is today. Verse 15, So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of ish the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. Joab is never too far away from where the blood is going to be. He is a genuine land shark. He's you, you, just a guy that you don't want to be around. Growing up, <laughs> my brother had a friend, Aaron. He was a tough dude. Uh, my brother wasn't, but he liked my brother, so my brother was always safe. If Aaron, <laughs> Aaron was around, uh, but he, he was tough. Anyway, um, I'm glad he liked me, too. He, he was a Joab of the neighborhood. I think he died a violent death, death, if I remember. Verse 16, And each one grasped his opponent by the beard and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore the place was called a field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. What? <laughs> Simultaneously, 24 men grab each other's beard and kill each other. That, who planned this? Who, they had to, the Hebrew word, calm down. Okay. The Hebrew word for sword is broad. It can mean a sword, which it mostly does. Or it can mean a dagger. In this case, evidently a long dagger. Because they grabbed each other's beard. I mean, if you had swords, you just hacked the guy's arm off when he's trying to grab your beard. They had to get close enough to dagger each other. Or well, they were dumb. I don't think that was it. These were supposed to be their champions. Somebody said, let it be with long daggers. Because Joab's going to use a long dagger to, to take out Abner later. But there's more to come. So, uh, all 24, dead, downright stupid. Who thought of this? This is a scene on a West Side Story. But it's worse. Whatever their intentions were, it ended... In unnecessary death and more death, because there's going to be even be a battle out of this, a waste of young men, a pointless episode in the early stages of David's kingdom. Nothing more than a barbaric gang fight. This was not military tactic. This was just a gang fight. It was a display of middle aged idiocy in men, namely Joab and. Uh, Abner. Abner's the one that suggested it. Joab liked the idea. Blood? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, we don't read of this stunt being repeated again. I wonder why. The misuse of testosterone leads to wasted blood. Therefore, that place is called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. Adding to the idiocy of fools is this attempt to glorify the name of this murder scene. It's not a battlefield. The duel was just as senseless. It's the field of sharp swords. Yeah, but not sharp people. A better name would have been the fool's field or the field of dumb dudes. But not the field of sharp swords. Anyway, this is why kings and fools. This is just, I don't think of any way to redeem this this event, to say, well, look at the bright side. Or, well, men were men back there. Well, men are men still. This is dumb. Verse 20. I mean, imagine if you were called, you know, you, you're you one of the champions to represent us. Yeah. <laughs> Another fool. I would have said, no, well, you're with daggers? Why don't we use swords? Anyway, therefore, that place we read, in verse 17, so uh, there were... There was a very fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So, it didn't solve anything. It escalated. Everything just got out of hand. Could you see the look on their faces when when you have 24 dead men holding each other's beard? And this is just silly. Uh, David, again, has more than 600 men. Uh, They're not all here. Some of them are. Verse 18. Now... The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael. Ashael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Well, this is going to work way against him. It's a bad day to run so fast. This is they're David's nephews. Joab is probably old. Joab may have been may have been older than than David. Uh, it says Ashael was fleet of foot as a gazelle. Ironically, he ran. Too fast, as we're going to get to verse 23, for his own good. Verse 19, Ashael pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right, hand or to the left from following him. So he's focused, he zeroed in, he knew that this was a golden moment, but he underestimated Abner's skill, and he overestimated his own skill. He thought because he could catch the middle-aged guy that he could take him out. If successful, what he would have done is dissolved the throne of Ishbosheth. They would have united the kingdom. Uh, he would have been a national hero. <clears throat> he was a prized target. But that doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Verse 20. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Ashael? And he answered, I am. There's a lot of talking for two men running <laughs> on the battlefield. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right hand and to the left and lay, your, lay hold of one of the young men And take his armor for yourself. But Ashael would not turn aside from following him. Well, this reference to taking the armor is not a reference that Ashael didn't have armor, but that you, to the victor, go the spoils from the vanquished. We read about David took Goliath's armor. The Philistines took Saul's armor. Uh, That's what he is saying. You know, go go get another prize. Leave me alone. Uh, But he wanted the big kill. And he got killed on his own safari. I mean, he just just did not happen. And he dies a gross, uh, just a grotesque death. So, verse 22, Abner said again to Ashael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? Uh, how then could I face your brother Joab? Well, Abner's a tough dude, and we're going to find that out. But he feared going head-to-head with Joab, because Joab evidently by this time already had a reputation of being a killer. Uh, but, but Joab wouldn't get too close to Abner, Abner either. In fact, when he's he trying to catch him after this event, he's going to bring his brother Abishai with him. Uh, it's not like, you know, there was no, not a match. But Abner knew the two tigers tangled, but they're both going to get hurt. It's just not worth it. So he doesn't want this blood feud. And um, he's trying to talk Ashael out of it, but he's not. this young man is bullheaded. He's a fool too. He's not understanding. The man is warning him. He's probably, you know, saying, oh, he's just afraid of me because I look how fast I can run. Well, it's one thing to run like a gazelle. It's another thing to fight like a tiger. Uh, just because you get there first doesn't mean you're going to be first in the end. These lessons are for ministry and serving Christ with our lives. The, the, we talk about the battlefield of Christianity. Well, we see it in the pages of Scripture. The same properties go with it. There are parallels that you just cannot dismiss. When the day comes for Abner to die, his murderer will be Joab. And the tactic chosen by Joab is stealth. Why? Because he knows Abner, sword to sword, might might win. And that's why Joab's going to be sneaky about it. Anyway, verse 23, however, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Ashael fell and died, stood still. Yeah, I bet they did. This big prize. Ashael could just taste it. He could taste the victory. But who is this guy with the blunt end? Who needs a spear tip if you could do this with the blunt end? Well, there's a lot happening here. So it's not the spear tip end, it's the other side. The butt of the spear. And he likely is, as he's running, Ashael's coming up on him hard and he has to slow down or stop. They both may have fallen to the ground. And he seems to, we we know he's trying not to hurt him. He'd use a sharp end if he were. He's trying to poke at him, maybe knock the wind out of him. Uh, But he miscalculates Asha'el's reaction time and the momentum and thrust that's coming at him. And so you have these two forces coming together. This hard piece of wood sticking out, held firmly by, evidently, a very strong man. Strong enough to hold it so it doesn't move out of his hand on impact. And it impales Asha'el. Goes right through muscle and tissue. The blunt end. It's so impressive that everybody was awestruck. It's not a freak accident. It's physics. But who saw it coming? I think Abner didn't know his own strength. I think he was shocked. He figured he'd just knock the guy out. He kills him with one blow. And so here, you know, that running real fast. (laughs) Maybe he was planning to knock Abner down with his speed and then finished. You know, Jonathan used that ta- tactic, came in his arm. I'll knock him down, you kill him. It is a valid tactic on, with these kinds of weapons, unforeseen by everyone. And so it was as many came by, verse 23, as came to the place where Ashel fell down and died, stood still. Yeah, they were in utter shock. This gory outcome. It's not even the spear sticking out of the man. It's the back end. It's a shameful death. It's ironic, too. Ran right into death. Um, again, less a freak accident, more of a perfect strike. Joab doesn't care anything about that. All he knows is, I'm going to kill you. He's like a weasel, he's not going to turn away from chasing the rabbit verse 24, Joab and Abishal also pursued Abner, the two brothers, wishing they could run like Abishal. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill, verse 24, of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Well, just what he was trying to avoid is happening. As Job said, the thing I feared has happened to me. And he's got to be he was always kicking himself. I knew this would happen. But you can imagine, this guy is running up on him. I'm just going to poke this kid. And he kills him. And now the instant thought is, oh, I killed him. The instant thought is, now I got to fight the brothers. Uh, and the, there's the law of, you know, the cities of refuge were there for the avenger of, avenger of death. <laughs> like you could go kill somebody for killing somebody and Joab's gonna uh, gonna do just just this if you wronged Joab no matter whose fault you were a marked man it was revenge without mercy he cared nothing for justification once he just said I have to kill you that was it verse 25 now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill so they regroup these are Seasoned troops, not seasoned like for a snack, but uh, they were, these were trained troops who'd been in battle. They knew how to regroup, uh, and that's what they do. They're taking a stand. You have to admire that. Verse 24, Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be a bitter in the latter end? How long will it be uh, then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Statesmanship. Essentially, he's saying, "Well, we tried to have this duel, so we wouldn't have this big battle." I think that's more likely what's going on. It was not just sport, but it it, did, it failed. Verse twenty-seven. And Joab said, "As God lives, unless you had spoken surely, then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So I would have chased you till tomorrow, but because you've spoken, you're right." Um, I'll kill you another time, is well, what's going on. Abner is a dead man walking <laughs> from this day forward, and he's going to let his guard down when he should not. Verse 28, so Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. So Joab had musical skills. No, that's not what it means. He probably had... Someone else. There's a shofar, the ram's horn blown. The battle is over, but the war is not. Verse 29, Then Abner and his men went on all night through the plain, crossed over Jordan, and (coughs) went through all (coughs) to Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. There's a lot of miles being covered by these men, and this is significant also to the story, the way it ends. I'll get to that in verse 30. And Joab returned from pursuing Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men and Ashael. So 20 killed in action for Judah. It goes on, verse 31. But the servants of David struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. That's 18 times the loss. What happened? I think it's the retreat. They didn't. It was not an organized retreat. They ran. Their own leader is running for his life from Ashael. And that would account for uh, the great route that uh, took place. This is not propaganda. It's what happens when you retreat in disorder from a trained army or a bloodthirsty one. Verse 32, Then they took up Ashael and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Well, it's 14 miles. Uh, to force march from Bethlehem to Hebron. But they had been fighting all day. They had to march to the fight. They engaged in the fight. They chased each other. They ended up, they're running all over the place. These are some tough guys. It's not like, well, let's camp down for the night. They go to a funeral. I mean, it's just emotionally uh, it's quite impressive. It's good to remember these are the guys that Saul was chasing, not many of them, and they're going to be David's men throughout. What about the hundreds of bodies? 300 and... I don't recall the number. 318, whatever it was. Um, 360 men who died. What about their bodies? Were they just left there for the buzzards? Well, that's possible. But I think that the Jews were sensitive to this all the way back from the days of Abraham. And they... Uh, I, I would think that they at least would come out the next day. It was quite gory. But... Uh, That's how this chapter ends. More of a chapter that stands out. It's like a good movie, you know. You kind of remember parts of it later and you process it. And as Christians who are supposed to be engaged in spiritual warfare, there are things to ponder from this story. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, may indeed we find us, may you find us, ready to, to receive anything your Holy Spirit points out to us from these lessons, from such accounts as we have just considered this evening. May you get us all home safely, we also ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.